This recording is a production of Faith Builders Educational Programs. This presentation was recorded at Teachers Conference 2018 held at Faith Builders from October 12 to 14. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, you know, Saturday is my only morning to sleep in. Hello, hello, hello. So I did sleep in this morning. It was kind of nice. Um, what was that, the number of that hymn again? Last hymn? 455. Um, that's a very interesting hymn. So it is. Do you have any idea what the guy meant when he wrote these hymns? <laughs> this hymn? I have news for you. He didn't mean what I meant when I sang it. Um, this is a uh, 1908. Um, <clears throat> this is... is um, is about seven or eight years, well, 1908, 1912, it's about four years before War I started. And this hymn comes out of the social gospel movement, the modernist movement. Um, it's very optimistic, uh, felt that you know, if we could just get things done a nice way and people would, would be kind to each other, the world would be a better place. I guess if people would be kind to each other, the world would be a better place. Um, but that's a hard thing to get done. There's no atonement in this song because the author didn't believe in the atonement. Um, he believed in, as many social gospels did, in a somewhat truncated modernist understanding of what Christianity was. And it certainly had a this-worldly uh, focus rather than a uh, heavenly world focus. It was really focused on bringing the kingdom of God to earth in a sense of creating a more just, inequitable society, um, using the machinery of power to do so. And World War I destroyed that optimism. So thanks for leading it, um, Gerald, though I don't think you knew what I was going to do with it. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, peace demonstrated. World War I and the travail of Mennonite and Brethren CEOs. When I was told that, um, you, that this session was to be focused on stories, uh, I'll just tell you quite frankly, I'm not much of a storyteller. Uh, and one could come up with all kinds of fun, and, uh, well, not fun, but interesting stories about people who responded in peaceful ways. But I thought maybe if we would focus in on this, and that's because also I've been really focusing in on this for the last year and a half. Um, uh, this is, to, I mean, 100 years ago, our country was still involved in World War I. And the people that I'm going to be talking about this morning had to face that and had to respond to that. Um, so that's why I thought it might be good to look at at uh, the experience of two uh, World War I COs who lived in my area in the Cumberland Valley of Maryland and Pennsylvania. Peace demonstrated World War I and the travail of Mennonite and Brethren COs. 
There we are. The war began, the war to begin all wars. Uh, you know what Wilson said. This was going to be the war to end all worlds. It was going to be the world, war to make the world safe for democracy. It's very optimistic about once America got involved in this, what, what it was going to accomplish. Well, it was a flop. It fell flat on his face. And actually, as we look backwards, this is certainly the beginning of one of the most bloody and war-prone centuries we've ever lived through. Okay, I think there was somebody recently, was it Stephen Pinker, who said we are less violent than we used to be? I just thought, where, what part of the universe does he live in? Uh, I mean, this has been a very bloody war, uh, century. Um, so, World War I. Uh, began in 1914 um, and pitted against it were the Allied and the Central Powers against each other. The Central Powers are Germany, Austria, Bulgaria, and the Ottoman Empire, or Turkey. And on the other side are England, France, Italy, some of those uh, Slavic countries, and Russia. And of course, this area over here was, down below here, was all part of it because they were uh, colonies of, of of Great Britain and of France and Spain at that particular point, okay? So that's who involved. Background causes of World War I, uh, there was a massive arm race that had been going on for a couple decades. Um, and interestingly, uh, the real focus of this was the buildup of navies uh, as well as armies, but naval power was really very important and uh, Britain led the pack. And then there are these countervailing uh, alliances that uh, are put in place, promises which some countries make to other countries and so on uh, to maintain a balance of power so no one gets ahead or at least the other side that you're worried about doesn't get ahead. And then uh, there's the conflict in the Balkans. And that's a question of who's really going to control that region. And Russia, the Russian Empire, uh, saw itself as the natural uh, sort of uh, dominant force or, uh, for that region that they really, it's, it's really was their sphere of operations. But then we also have the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, which had a long time history of involvement in that region. And so there's this, and then there's also these, these movements within the region for self-autonomy, okay? Uh, not really wanting either side to really be in control. So Europe was a powder keg. And the match that lit the powder keg was the assassination of, Aus of the Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie at Sarajevo in June 18, 1914, by a Serbian nationalist. Okay, and that um, uh, that gave there was this exchange back and forth. Eventually, what happened was we have this big war that people. I don't know if you'd say stumbled into, uh, but they certainly weren't counting the cost. That's typical of most wars. Uh, people get into them without really counting the cost. You know, Jesus said you really are supposed to count the cost, but they don't. And then the cost is astronomical. Because of the modern technology and so the old way of fighting wars with mass troops and cavalry and so didn't really work. This is the first war that's really mechanized, though it's a transitional thing. But certainly the firepower is much greater. We have machine guns. We have nasty uh, things. And so what it boils down to is this trench warfare. Here's a trench from the period. Here is a picture of a trench in France. I think it's in the Argonne Forest as it looks today. That's the remnant of one. So we can even see today still the scars of this war a hundred years later. 
Okay, the human cost of World War I from July 1914 to November 1918, nine million soldiers died. They weren't all shot, okay? Some of them uh, died of diseases. 21 million soldiers wounded, seven million civilian deaths. That's a lot of people, okay? And interesting enough, for about three years, uh, United States stayed out of it. In fact, when Woodrow Wilson ran for a second term in 1916, he ran with the slogan, he, kept, he has kept us out of the war. We did, a lot of people did not want to get involved in this war at all. They thought it was a bad idea. Okay? But... Um, we did get involved in the world. The uh, U.S. and uh, German, Germany uh, practiced some re submarine warfare, basically because when it came to surface vessels, England uh, or Great Britain had the supremacy. Uh, submarine uh, warfare was the only way that the, the Germans felt that they really could uh, counter that. And so in 1915, uh, they sunk the Louis Lusitania, um, and 129 U.S. citizens died. Now, Lusitania was a British ship. It was a, it was a merchant ship. It was a, um, had a passenger ship and so on. And just like our country is every time, okay, the important thing was not who else died, but the 129 Americans died. Uh, I remember in 1991 with uh, Desert Storm and so on, you know, the number of Americans who were killed in that engagement were really, really weren't that big. I forget what the number is, but the 100,000 Iranians were, I mean, Iraqis were killed, and, you know, who, what's, what's the big deal about that? Uh, that's always been, I mean, nations have this tendency to be really self-centered and self-focused. What matters is who of ours died? That's the real important question. Well, Germany backs off from unrestricted uh, submarine warfare for a while. Uh, in response to the outrage in the United States and so on, and concern about that. But then in January of 1917, it resumes unrestricted uh, submarine warfare, and Britain intercepts a, a telegram sent by the foreign minister of Germany, Zimmermann, to Mexico, basically saying, listen, if you guys would come in on our side, side uh, you know, on the war when, when America gets involved in it, you know, we will help you get back some of your territory. Well, it was intercepted. It was nicely handed over to the Americans, and it caused a great deal of, of outrage. On April 6, 1917, Wilson asked Congress to declare war in Germany. And as he said, it's the war to end all wars, and this is the war to make the world safe for democracy. There we are. Okay. Well, you're in a war. What do you need? You need warm bodies to shoot guns and to be shot. You need soldiers. And so in May 18, 1917, the Selective Service Act was passed. It required all men between the ages of 21 and 31 to register for the draft by June 6, 1917. It granted exemption from combatant duty to COs. It expected the COs to do non-combatant duty. It left the de definition of non-combatant duty up to the president to define. And that's a very important thing because... He didn't decide that until April of 1918, okay, almost a full year later. And that kept people in limbo. What is non-combatant duty? What do we mean by that? Okay? Um, and that was all part of the plan. 
Okay, conscription, 1917 to 1918 here in the United States. 24 million men registered. Three million men were inducted into the military. Initially, 21,000 men stated that they were COs when they registered. 17,000 of those accepted, eventually accepted, non, uh, accepted combatant service. That means they went in as soldiers and they fought. Um, 1,700 accepted non-combatant service. That means they did things like um, <clears throat> worked in the medical corps, worked in the quartermaster service, and stuff like that. They did supporting things. They didn't actually, they didn't actually go into the trenches and uh, go over the top, um, unless they were medical persons and they had to go rescue somebody. Um, 2,300 2, refused to do any military service. 1,500 of these were Mennonites. Um, I'm, I should have found out how many of these were German Baptists. But the, of course, the German Baptists is a much smaller group at this particular time. The Brethren, the larger Brethren group, the Church of the Brethren, um, <clears throat> they had a very poor record during this period of time. I'm not going to talk so much about that, um, but uh, they were a peace church, and they, had quite, they did have some young men who really stood for them. But the, the Church of the Brethren was waffling on the issue itself and sent... Uh, unclear signals to their young men as to what they were supposed to do. Um, 65% of Mennonite COs refused to do any service. 32% of Mennonite COs accepted non-combatancy. Okay? Now, World War I is a total war. Very similar, even more so than, I would say, actually the first war that our country was involved in that was a total war was the Civil War. And what I mean by total war is that all the resources of that nation are put into the effort to win the war. We are at, our country is at war right now. Is it a total war? No. No, it's not. It's not a total war. Um, how many of you think about it every day? Anybody here think about the fact that every day our country is at war? No, you don't, because we're not in a total war. 1917, after 1917, you would have been thinking about it. It was front and center. It's what the newspapers talked about. Uh, everything was geared toward uh, winning this war. There was a lot of pressure. Um, you know, persons who did not support it uh, actively were considered to be slackers. And there's this great propaganda machine that is cranking out stuff. Here's a couple... Uh, a couple of posters from that period. Beat back the Hun with Liberty Bonds. Well, wouldn't you want to do something with that guy? Okay, sure. Okay, and lend him a hand. Buy Liberty the Bonds. Okay, this boy's going over the top. He's going to go fight for you. Can't you at least buy a Liberty Bond and, and f help finance the war? And this is very effective. Okay, it's very, very effective. And it did raise money. It did raise money, but even more importantly, it got people on board and supporting the thing, all right? And there was pressure uh, for people, even for non-resistant people. I mean, the young guys that were drafted had to go to the military camps, but the people back home had to also face some questions. Were they going to buy liberty bonds? That's one of them. Were they going to actively support the war or whatever? And there were some folks who got in trouble for not doing that. Oops, here we are. Do your bit. Everybody, like I said, this was a total war. There was this thing, everybody needs to do their bit. And every Liberty Bond is a shot at a U-boat. Fire your shot today. Buy Liberty Bond. Okay? 
Um, one of the things that's very interesting here is we do see how, how propaganda, how public opinion can bring pressures onto people and, and force them to try to force them to, to give in to, to uh, even though they may do so reluctantly, they don't really like it, maybe they'll keep their heads down, they'll be quiet, and so on. But it works. It works today in other ways. Okay? So I want to look, first of all, at Mennonite CEO Isaac Baer, who goes to Camp Meet. Isaac, oh, oh, let's first of all look at the Mennonite Church's um, position. Uh, shortly after the war was declared in the summer of 1917, there was a gathering of Mennonite leaders in uh, Yellow Creek, Indiana, and they uh, came up with a statement that they sent to the, to the, um, to the president and so on, but they also came up with recommendations for what they thought their young men should do. How should these young men who go, who are, who are called up, who are drafted, how should they do? Well, first of all, one of the things that's interesting is that they said that you should register, okay? And they also said that when you're called up to go to the camps, go to the camps. That's a very interesting thing that they, they made that decision. Um, and so on, but, and that's, that was the advice that was given. But they said, have nothing to do with any part of the war machinery, okay? Indicate your non-resistant uh, position uh, on, on their draft, uh, draft registration questionnaires. Don't wear the uniform. Don't accept any form of military service. Don't accept Red Cross or YMC work. Don't, and these are to the folks back home, don't buy Liberty Bonds, okay? That's the, that's the position of the church. Not everybody followed that. Quite a number did, but not everybody did. Okay? But that's its official position. Okay, here we have, so here we have Isaac Baer who's confronted with this question. He's born in 1892 near Paramount, uh, Washington County, Maryland. His parents are Henry and Barbara Martin Baer. Henry Baer was a minister at Miller's Mennonite Church. And Isaac's grandfather, Adam Baird, also served as a minister there in the same church. He graduated from the eighth grade. <coughs> uh, I forgot to finish up my PowerPoint. He wanted to attend the um, school, the, or the Bible school, that took place in Alexandria, Virginia, which was a precursor to Eastern Mennonite School, which is now Eastern Mennonite, what became Eastern Mennonite College and now Eastern Mennonite University. He wanted to attend there, but his dad said no. His dad wasn't really keen on higher education. If, if he had said, can I come to Faith Builders, Henry would have said, no, what do you want to do that for? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, so, but in, 19, in 1917, he was managing his father's farm. His parents had retired. They were living in another place near to the farm and so on. But he was managing the farm with the help of his younger brother, Ben, and his two sisters, Sandy and Martha. And he was a member at Miller's Mennonite Church and where he taught Sunday school. Later on, he was ordained a minister under Lancaster Conference and served as a missionary in Washington, D.C. for many years. Um, I never met him. He died before I even knew that he existed. He, he, I, if I would have known about him, I could have met him in my younger days. Melvin, did you ever meet him? Yes, I yeah. did. Yeah, he, he's, he's my hero. Okay, I'll just tell you that. He's my hero. One of my heroes. But he asked himself, when he, when he realized that he was going 
that this was happening, he asked himself, will it involve me? Will they want me since I cannot train to be a soldier? But in June 6, 1917, according to instructions, he registered for the draft. And he was called up. On uh, September 27, 1917, he passed his physical, he was called up. He had no dependents, uh, who, and no persons who were dependent upon him solely for his support. He was a healthy young man, and so he was called up. On September 27, 1917, he reported to Camp Meade along with his brother-in-law, Jonas Hagee. Jonas Hagee had been dating his sister, Elizabeth, and they were planning to get married when Jonas was drafted. And they thought, well, should we get married or shouldn't we? Well, they decided to get married. So in August, they got married. And in September, Jonas was called up and had to go to Camp Meade. And this is conscripts on the way to Camp Meade. It's not Isaac, just a, a general picture. Uh, here's, here's the layout of Camp Meade. This is what Camp Meade looked like in 1917, 1918. He got there uh, on the, on the um, 20, yeah, the 29th, 27th, October 3rd, what they did, first of all, these guys came in, they were assigned a regular company and a regiment and so on. And at some particular point, they were supposed to make their CO-ness known. And uh, he did. He very quickly did. He's a very articulate, articulate person who seems to have uh, ability about him to kind of express himself and also, you know, not to be too intimidated. Though he does admit he's shaking in his boots when uh, he's talking to these guys because they're intimidating. The first encounter he has is with this uh, officer on a horse. Who, and, and you have to remember, this is 1918. Okay? How do you think he showed up? He showed up with his black hat and his plain coat. It's obvious this person is somebody different. He and his brother both. Not all men knights showed up that way, but he did. He came from Washington County. <laughs> <laughs> Kendrick understands that. <laughs> Okay. All right. So it's obvious that these folks, there's something different about these two guys who are there in the middle of something. And this officer says, who are you? And he said, we're Mennonites. Well, what's that mean? And Isaac says, we are a people who do not believe in killing. And he has this interesting exchange with this officer who actually, it's interesting, he, he, Isaac responds to him in a very meek but firm way, and it, it somewhat disarms the person. Well, he, he's there by October 3rd. Uh, he's transferred, he and Jonas are transferred to the detention barracks where they're putting the COs. But this is a typical thing. They get them there, <clears throat> they get them there, and they're in a regular company and regiment for a while in a kind of a way to sort of sift them out and to give some pressure and see if they'll cave in. And only after it's obvious that they're not going to cave in at this point do they send them to the CO barracks. And that's where they stay. Now, the CO barracks there can't mean changes locations a couple different times during uh, Isaac's and Jonas's uh, time there. On October 29th, he's been there about a month. The army officers who are in charge of the CO barracks um, attempt to get the COs to take hospital or quartermaster service. They gather them all together in the mess hall, and they give them this spiel, you know, we know you, can't, you don't want to fight, you don't want to kill, but can't you, I mean, what would be the harm if you went and helped in the hospital, if you served in the, or if you went and shoot horses, or you went and worked on the, on the vehicles or something like that? Or what would really be the harm? Couldn't you at least do that? Okay, well, 
you know what happened? Some said, oh, yeah, I guess we could. Yeah, that sounds reasonable. We could do that. Isaac wasn't going to have it. In fact, he, he watched this thing happening, and they, they, they pointed out a few people and asked them this question, and they got some mealy-mouth answers. I mean, some of the CEOs gave some mealy-mouth answers. And Isaac was somewhat bothered by this. And, and he said, you know, I, I looked at that, and I thought, they're going to think we don't have any reason for being here, for taking this stand. And so he went to the officer after the thing was over, and he said, can I talk to you? And the officer said, yes. And Isaac, and he had an appointment with the officer, and this is part of what he said to him. He asked, first of all, do you have a Bible? And he said, yes. So he had this Bible. He said, so many people talk about their conscience. And I said, what does my conscience or any other man's conscience amount to if there's no stronger power governing it? Now, I said the Bible was that stronger power that governs our conscience. Scriptures acknowledge governments and give us instruction what attitude to take towards such. Christ's kingdom is not of this world. The Bible forbids war, calls for a separation, and a dying to self. That man cannot enter heaven without first repenting of his sins, being converted, thereby receiving the divine nature of Christ. And after having undergone this change, he no longer holds his citizenship here upon earth, but has his affections set upon things above. Oh, don't you love it? Atonement, uh, ontological change, <laughs> the work of the Spirit, not killing. All right? Why? How could you say it all in such a nice way with somebody who's hostile to you? This is, this is, this is amazing to me. He, 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 like I said, he's sort of my hero. Well, then we go to the second person, okay? German Baptist CEO, Morris Hess, goes to Camp Meade. Marshall, what is he, your great, great, great uncle or something like that? Yeah. All right. Um, how greats? <laughs> Three or four greats, yeah. So, yeah. Um, Morris Hess is an interesting person. He grew up in Franklin County. His father is... Um, He's born in 1888, a little older than Isaac, near Mont Alto, PA. His parents are Abraham C. and Elizabeth Hess. They're members of Falling Spring Old German Baptist Brethren Church. I think actually his dad was an elder. Uh, he graduated from Cumberland Valley Normal School, which was a precursor to Shippensburg University in 1908. <clears throat> he was principal Dry Run High School, my home area, in um, 1908. For, I mean, for three years. He graduated from your Sinus College in eastern Pennsylvania in 1914. He taught high school for three years. He graduated from the University of Pennsylvania in 1917 with a Master of Arts in Latin. And when war broke out, he was teaching at Swarthmore Preparatory School in Swarthmore, Prep, uh, uh, Pennsylvania, which was a school for rich kids who, you know, you know what a prep school is. Okay? That's what he's doing in 1917 when war broke out. He was not a church member. He had not made a Christian commitment. And he was certainly on a trajectory here. <clears throat> he was doing what we all fear children will do when they go get education. All right? Um, <laughs> there's reason why people worry about this. All right? Um, what was the German Baptist positions? They're a little less clearly defined, at least in the, in the written literature and so on. Uh, they, like the Mennonites, said, yes, go register when you, and so on. If you're called up, go. They could not take up arms against their fellow man. 
They could not serve the military arm of the nation in any supportive role. And this is really interesting to me. This is what they said. Nonconformity to the world required their members not to wear the uniform. That was really interesting to me. Okay? So what does he do? Yeah. Oh, there we are. In August 29th, uh, he received a notice of co-op. On September 29th, 1917, he appealed for an exemption. It was denied. On October 29th, um, he uh, had a notice to report to Camp Meade. Well, actually, what he did, once he got his call up, he went back home. I mean, this thing really shook him. And he made a Christian commitment. He went back home. On October 30th, 1917, was baptized at Falling Spring, joined the Old German Baptist Brethren. On November 4th, 1917, he reports to Camp Meade. And he also goes looking like some strange duck with a funny suit on. All right? They know this guy's different. Okay? He gets there and writes home to his dad on November 11th, 1917. One would expect that here there would be unity. I mean, uh, he's in the CO barracks. These guys are all opposed to war. But there is unity only in opposition to war. While one group is endeavoring to hold a religious service, possibly not 10 feet away, another group is noisily discussing some political or social subject, or maybe even attacking the fundamentals of religion. And you did. You had, you had see the, uh, persons who were COs for all kinds of different reasons. Okay, you had Mennonites. There's uh, um, uh, Isaac Baer with some of his fellow Mennonite COs. There are 215 COs there at Camp Meade between September 1917 and June 1918. Now, they're not all there at the same time. Okay? They keep dribbling in over the months. Some of them are actually sent back home, maybe because um, you know, they did a further medical examination and realized this person wouldn't be fit to serve, and so they sent them back home. Uh, that happened in a number of different cases. Uh, there was one Mennonite CO from our area who um, they gave him an IQ test and decided he was too stupid to be a soldier. <laughs> uh, that's, boy, I'll tell you, sometimes it helps. Uh, and 186, there were 186 religious COs, that's 86% of them, but there were 38 non-religious COs, about 14%. Uh, this is a picture of the Dunkard, a bunch. Uh, this is uh, Church of the Brethren and uh, German Baptist Brethren. Isaac, does this thing have a pointer on it? Yeah, that is Morris Hess. Okay? Doesn't have a beard. Later on, he grew a beard, and then the army shaved it off. And he never grew a beard after that uh, for the rest of his life. Of course, you don't have to grow a beard and be German Baptist. All right? So... Um, Okay, this is um, a picture from the same time of 13 socialist COs. And this guy up here, right here with the beard on, they also shaved his beard off. His name is Leroy Horlocker, and he was a wobbly. He belonged to the Industrial Workers of the World, a labor union. It was social, he was a socialist. And um, he's a very interesting person. And I could talk more about him, but um, that's not my subject this evening. Then the interesting thing, you see these guys here? They're African-Americans. Okay. There were African-American COs. They belonged normally to um, some small, normally some small African-American 
uh, Pentecostal or holiness group, which at this, uh, those groups at this particular time in World War I were non-resistant, okay? So these are some of the... Okay, that gets me back to the purposeful ambiguity of non-combatancy. Remember I said that when the Civil Service Act the Selective Service Act was passed, they left non-combatancy up to the uh, president to define. They did that on purpose. And the reason why they, well, at least they, the army and the government used that in a purposeful sort of way because no one was sure what non-combatancy would mean, all right? Uh, I mean, they were hoping that maybe it meant that they could go do something uh, one of the things that were floated, and we'll talk about it, was the uh, idea of farm furloughs, where they furloughed these guys to work on the farms and stuff like that. They didn't know what was going on. And the president kept this ambiguous for, to give the army basically the space to wear the COs down. And you know what? It worked. It worked. Because they didn't really know. But anyhow, one of the things that, like I said, they wanted to do was to do hospital work. And in November 19, 1917, General Kuhn, who was in charge of Camp Meade at that particular point, now later on, he left, he took the first uh, set of trained soldiers over across to France. But this is him in 1917, greeting uh, greeting a a new conscript. Um, And he met with the COs, and again, he was trying to persuade them, do ho- if you can't do hospital work, I mean, do combatant work, uh, if you can't be a soldier, I mean, fight, can you, be, can you do hospital work, can you be, uh, court, do work in quartermaster service? And, and in that conversation that, that Coons had with the COs, somebody asked about, you know, what do we have to carry arms? And he said, even hospital work would require them to carry sidearms and to protect the hospital if attacked. To me, this is practical insurance, assurance that no work in the army will be declared non-combatant. All right? So he said, this is not a safe place to be. Now, the other thing that they tried to get them to do was to work. Uh, the camp had um, YMCA uh, buildings there. The YMCA fully supported the war. Uh, they... they um, um, uh, provided services and so on, entertainment for uh, classes, libraries, and stuff like this. This is a YMCA building on Camp Mead. And uh, they, okay, if you can't, if, will you at least help with the YMCA work or work for the Red Cross? And, and again, when this appeal was made and the pressure was put on it, some people said, okay. There's one interesting Quaker CO by the name of Ray Hoffman, um, and when this was proposed, he said, oh, I guess I'd go work for the YMCA. And so he spent the remainder of his time at Camp Mead running the, uh, the movie projector um, uh, for, the, for the soldiers. I mean, they showed movies. This is the beginning of movies and so on. Um, but Morris said, in theory, the YMCA is trying to do a great good, but I cannot yet see, yet see how a Christian who knows better can properly act in a work which includes an effort to convince young men that war is righteous and according to the scriptures. It was a supporting service. It wasn't an official supporting service. It wasn't technically part of the army, but it was assisting with the whole thing. And the Red Cross was doing the same thing. So there's this pressure to do something, to do some kind of service. And like I said, some agree to do it, okay? Some to one degree or another. But then in January of 1918, 
um, there's this idea floated of farm flowers. We have, they, have, they have drafted so many men, and they're in the army, and they're thinking about the spring when things need to be planned. They're thinking about the harvest and everything. You know, we need, we need some workers back home. And there's no way that we can get all these guys across, get them trained and across to France and so on. So the idea was floated that, that um, we furlough some of these soldiers to the farms to work on farms to grow food. Okay, and there are various, there are various schemes for that. Um, one of the schemes was that these would be far, that the government would actually set up farms that were directly under their supervision and the, the hay, the grain, and so on would go right directly into the army or to the military. Okay? But the one that came up in January 22, 1918, it's introduced into Congress by, uh, into the House of Representatives by a congressman from, uh, I think, Alabama. He really didn't care one whit about COs. He was more concerned about, you know, is there going to be enough workforce out there to harvest, to plant and to harvest? Well, um, <coughs> the COs and the churches saw this as an opportunity. Can we piggyback on this thing? And it seemed as though, from what their communications and conversations with, um, with people at the state, at the War Department in D.C., uh, and with officers at the various camps that, yes, they could. And so on March 16, 1918, Wilson signs the furlough bill. Four days later, he defines non-combatant service as work in the engineer, medical, or quartermaster course. So that's what it means. If you're doing non-combatants work, and see, up to this time, people were hoping, well, non-combatants work means I don't have to be a soldier anywhere. Okay, but after... After Wilson defined it, they realized when we're talking about non-combatancy, it's you're going to be a soldier and you're going to help with the war effort directly or indirectly. Okay? And in mid-April, <clears throat> shortly after this, um, there, after, once, the fur, once the furlough bill was signed and became law, then COs began to fill out these forms to get a furlough, to be put on a farm. The furlough bill... Uh, basically said, you know, you find, the county agents went around to find farmers who needed work, needed helpers, they had a list, and uh, soldiers could apply for a furlough to go work on farms. And the COs did this. They were, across the board, denied. And um, Jonas Hagee, Isaac Bear's brother-in-law, wrote home to his wife. Uh, he's somewhat philosophical about this. This is how he looks at what happened. As long as the government sees <clears throat> there, is, there are some who take service, our privilege will be delayed, even if we are entitled to furlough. If the officers grant furlough at once, they will all want furloughs. We'll have to see that the two-sided ones, those who, that's how he describes people who aren't firm in their convictions, um, <clears throat> um, get something to do till we know the proper sifting has been done. <clears throat> then what will, we, what will be done with the rest? Will there be a place for them too? We can use them on the farm so we will furlough them. That's his way he looks at what he thinks the, the government and the army are thinking. Okay, that takes me then to the next part. Judged insincere. In June of 1918, 
The, um, Wilson appointed a three-man board, Richard Stoddard, Julian Mack, Carlin Stone. They're all lawyers. They have different roles. One's a, a judge, one's a law uh, professor, and the other one was an attorney who is now in the Army. And they form a three-man board of inquiry, inquiry. And their job is to go to all the camps and interview the COs and decide who's sincere. And they offer them three options. Re- reconstruction work in France under the American Friends Service Committee. Farm furloughs, or if we judge you to be insincere and you don't take service, imprisonment at, at, at Fort Leavenworth in Kansas. Well, Isaac Baer was the first person interviewed. That was because they took him alphabetically and he was, his name was the first one. And they took him in separately, all by himself. And they questioned him about his church membership and everything like that. And then they said, well, you know, can't you... Uh, help, can't you help with that? And he said, no, well, he said, you know, he's, you know, he's a farmer. He said, well, they said, you know, farming, we need food, and that helps the war effort and so on. So if you're helping with the war effort already, why don't you just go ahead and be a soldier, essentially what they're arguing. And he says, the tilling of the soil, farming is one occupation that the scriptures endorse. The fact that war is on does not, that now render my occupation evil. We think we could decline to do anything at a time of war, but I think this government would prefer that we be an asset rather than liability. Furthermore, I believe that I serve a just God. Should the proceeds of my farm eventually reach the battlefront, a matter over which I have absolutely no control, would a just God hold me responsible in such case? Okay, Isaac, like most of the COs who are still uh, holding to not doing any service, most of them at Camp Meade at that particular point were actually granted farm furloughs, okay? But Morris Hess was not. On, he was interviewed with a group of nine persons, and what those nine persons, a um, number of them had in common is, like Morris, they had joined church after the draft was implemented, Okay. And I think, though he thinks not, but if you look at it, it it looks as though um, most of the persons who were deemed insincere had not been church members, and so the the Board of Inquiry went by that. But they also rely a lot on what the officers were saying. And one of the things that happened with Morris is when they took this IQ test, um, he scored the highest. He's a very smart fellow. And after he took the IQ test, some officers came to him and offered him a commission, an officer's commission, and he wouldn't do it. I, I can't say this but my, for sure, but my sense is that maybe what they're doing is they're really putting pressure on this guy because they want him to cave in. Because he refutes, he refutes their stereotypes of COs. Their feeling is, I mean, these are just a bunch of dumb yokels. Farmers who don't know any better, they're, you know, they grew up this way, and if we can just persuade them, this guy doesn't fit the bill. But anyhow, he is judged insincere, along with 14 others, and they are sent to Fort Leavenworth, and he writes to his father, we are content with our lot, and we believe God will give us strength to face whatever we may have to meet. We know the scriptures will not permit us to do otherwise than we have done. I clearly remember your prayer that I might be faithful as I came up out of the water at Falling Spring. I ask that you and all you, all of you face the matter with as much confidence and faith as we are endeavoring to show. Well, he's sent to 
He sent to Fort Leavenworth on July 13th with the other 14 COs. There are other COs there from coming from other places who had been deemed, this is, this is, a, this is a prison. Uh, Fort Leavenworth has a military prison on, that's where they're sent, okay? But on July uh, 19th, 1918, they have another uh, series of interviews with the Board of Inquiry. And then on July 25th, 150 COs from Fort Leavenworth are sent up to Fort Riley, to Camp Funston, Camp Funston's in, on Fort Riley, um, Kansas. And what they want them, these guys to do, uh, there are these governed, governed uh, militarily administered um, hay fields, I guess, or farms, and they want them to help with the hay harvest for the, for the military. And Morris notices, he says, it's very, with a very obvious purpose of working us into the quartermaster department by the haymaking route. And this is Camp Funston at Fort Raleigh in 1918. And they try various ways. They actually get some to, to uh, help at various things. But there's a corps that will not. There's about 130. Well, actually, there are several persons who were deemed who... Um, they you know, gave an order, they refused to do it, and so they put him in the brig um, for court-martial. And then on September 28, 1918, 130 remaining COs were ordered to police the parade grounds. 80 of them agreed. 50 refused. They were sent to the guardhouse. One of the other COs who was there was uh, another German Baptist man by the name of Vern Kessler. And his daughter has recently edited a really gripping set of documents, letters, diaries, and so on, of Verne's and of his wife and family members. And I had the, had the privilege of hearing her talk about her grandfather. And uh, have anybody of you seen that book? It's really an interesting book. I, I forgot, I should have brought my copy along with me. But he was handed a rake and he refused to take the break. And she said that whenever young men come up to her and they talk to her about how much they appreciated the book and so on, she said, would you take the rake? Would you have taken the rake? That doesn't seem to be a really big thing. Why can't you just take this rake and rake up the ground? What harm would that be? Well, Vern Kessler asked, asked the officer, if I take this rake, what about tomorrow? So you'll do what I tell you to do tomorrow. And so they knew they couldn't take the rake. All these things, and again, one of the things I want to impress upon is that all these various things that they asked, you know, you could get this feeling, well, am I just being difficult? Am I just being, um, you know, can I cooperate? Can I try to get along here? And that's sort of our natural inclination. But what you had to realize is what the army was doing in very insidious and clever way was trying to get these people to cooperate. And once they got their toe in the, in the door, then they could push it all the way open and it would, you know. So they refused. They were sent to the guardhouse. They were court-martialed in groups. Morris Hess is court-martialed on November 8, 1918. He's sentenced to 25 years hard labor. He's sent to Fort Leavenworth on November 15th. At his, well, oh, did I, okay, okay, this is his testimony at his court-martial. I know the teachings of Christ, my savior, 
He taught us to resist not evil, to love our enemies, to bless them that curse us, to do good to them that hate us. Not only did he teach this, but he practiced it in Gethsemane before Pilate and on Calvary. He would, we would indeed be hypocrites, even an educated person can have, make a smelling mistake, and base traitors to our profession if we should be unwilling to endure the taunts and jeers of a sinful world and imprisonment and torture and death rather than participate in war and military service. We know that obedience to Christ will gain for us the glorious prize of eternal life. We cannot yield, we cannot compromise, we must not suffer. Okay, he was sent to Fort Meade, I mean, back to Fort Leavenworth. Um, he was assigned uh, a number. He became prisoner 15194. And this is the solitary confinement. Uh, play. He went to a, a regular cell. He refused to do any work. It put him in solitary confinement. And I'm, not, I'm running out of time, so I won't go through all this. But... Um, he gets his prisoner clothes and numbers. I'm one, these, these are from his diary, which he wrote on toilet paper. It's a really, you know, not toilet paper like we did. It's not the soft kind. Um, <laughs> we get our prisoner clothes and numbers. I'm 15194. I refuse to work in gang assigned, given 14 days of solitary confinement. That's a solitary confinement cell. And I'm chained to the door nine hours a day. Okay? And what they would do is they would high cuff them. They would uh, hold, uh, cuff him like this with, a, with uh, handcuffs, and have their, and he would be hang, he would be s sort of sit standing there uh, for nine hours a day, and then they take him down. He served three times, three 14-hour uh, episodes in solitary confinement because he would not give in. Now, finally, in December, middle of December, um, Secretary of War Baker found out that the army was doing this high cuffing, and he said, "You have to stop that." And so they stopped that. All right. All right. On January fourth, uh, the board of uh, review, the board of inquiry, comes again, interviews him, and on January twenty seventh, nineteen eighteen, he's released with one hundred other COs. He says, "I passed through the big iron gates about twelve ten p.m." And that's the big iron gates there at Fort Leavenworth. And, but for, and then he got on the train and went back home to Franklin County. But around 400 COs remained, and they were there, some of them were there for several months until finally. In fact, there were COs who were, at, I think, at Leavenworth and then also at Alcatraz up and through 1921. Uh, most of them tended to be socialist. Um, so they did. All right. Now, I have gone over my time. And... I guess I'm going to just skip the last point. This recording and many others are available through Christian Learning Resource, the campus bookstore at Faith Builders. Order online at www.christianlearning.org or call 877-222-4769.